friends, fellow evolvers and curious people everywhere. Welcome to this episode of Being with Sally Wilson. I'm Sally Wilson and I feel so, so lucky to have Katrina Nanastad as my guest today. She has celebrity status in our family. Poppy hates me saying that, but welcome Katrina. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today, Sally. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. And my niece is very excited. My mother's very excited. The whole family is very excited. Listeners and viewers, I'll tell you why. So several months ago, my niece came to me and said, Anissa, you need to read this book. And I said, oh, really? Do I? She's 11 years old, by the way. I said, why do I need to read this book? And she said, because it's really good. And I went on then to read We Are Wolves, which is one of the books written by Katrina, and I was hooked. So, Katrina, you have given, as I said in my email when we first met, when I first got in touch with you, you have given three generations of women in our family such joy through your, through your <laughs> stories. So thank you. Oh no, thank you. Thank you for all reading them. That just that just warms my heart so much to know that about the three generations reading my books. That's really special. Absolutely. And I, I know that your audience is children, but I didn't I, I I was never aware. There was never the sense of awareness that this is written for a child. It felt relevant to anybody and was just gripping. I mean, I've read three of your books now. We Are Wolves and Waiting for the Storks. Have I got that title right? Waiting for the Storks. Yeah. And Rabbit Soldier. Rabbit Soldier. Angel Thief. Angel Thief. Yep. <laughs> and they were all absolute page turners, which I just couldn't put down. Um, and, you know, your ability, how did you, how, what, what is your story with writing? Katrina, because I know that when you were 10, you had your first attempt <laughs> at writing and you're like, oh, no, I don't really, not, not going not gonna to do this. And then something later on sparked your love for stories again. How did all that happen? Yeah, well, that thing about uh, my 10-year-old attempt was really only because I got a typewriter. I had no interest in becoming a writer. I actually didn't even like reading books as a kid. I think I was shown... I could, I'm 55 years old. So when I was a kid, a lot of books for kids were quite earnest. And, you know, people love Enid Blyton. I hated Enid Blyton's <laughs> books. I really didn't, didn't find them interesting. I read comics because I like humour and colour. So thank goodness for comics or I might never have learnt to read very well. Um, but my love for stories really came about when I was a teenager and I finally found my way to some books that I could actually enjoy and particularly a, a real change in my life came in year 11 and 12 at school when I had a brilliant English teacher mm. and up until that stage I'd been really pretty much a math science student and had planned to pursue that sort of course after school um, but my English teacher was just passionate about literature and you know when someone's really passionate yeah. about someone you, you catch that enthusiasm? I really did. And so much so that I went on to study literature at university and then I became a teacher. But by that stage, I was hooked on stories and books. And um, as I was teaching, my favourite part of every day was sharing stories with my students. I just 
I just love the magic of a well-written story to drag everyone in together into a new world. Like, you know, it could be something you escape to on your own or if you're sharing a story with a class, the whole class could disappear into that beautiful world of the story. And then also when I had my own children, I just used to love snuggling up on the lounge with them and reading picture books. And again, that magic of the book, the story, that we could all escape together and even when the last page is shut on a good story that it lives on in your thoughts and your imagination and with children that it lives on in what they talk about and the words they use. So I think it was all that um, that absolute magic of story that I started to appreciate from the end of my schooling years with that great teacher through to my experience of sharing stories with children mm. that truly got me inspired and wanting to create my own my own version of that kind of story magic for children yeah absolutely and something that you just mentioned a well-written story so yeah. <laughs> how do we become really great writers I mean I, because everyone often I think people think it's just like musicians you know people often say to my husband who's a pianist oh I'd love to be able to just sit down and play like that <laughs> you know <laughs> and and there's actually a very long process usually involved in getting yeah. to that level so so you know what is that process like well I <laughs> I think you've probably hit the nail on the head there with that funny thing that people say I'd love to just be able to sit down and play the piano or people often say I'm, I'd love to uh, write children's books when I retire and um, but when you talk to them they're actually not writing at all now which is fine and they might be able to sit down and do something brilliant immediately when they retire but for me it was a practice thing and I, I always talk to children about that when I first started writing I wasn't very good I got one of my first books I wrote got published and I thought oh, I'm so good at this I'm so clever I've really got what it takes and then for the next nine years everything I wrote and sent into my publisher was rejected <laughs> and nine years yeah nine <laughs> years and it wasn't that I wasn't just hitting the spot for the market at that time, I look over at those stories and I'm so embarrassed <laughs> that I sent them in because they weren't well written. But what happened over those nine years, because I liked writing and kept writing, I got practice and I got better at writing. And, of course, I've always been reading, so I take note of what makes a phrase or a story or a character come to life and try to apply that in my own writing. So it was just that learning from other people's work and practicing and the more you practice any skill the better you get at it don't you I mean yeah. you know that from your career as, a, as an opera singer you don't just wake up one morning and go I would love to stand on the stage and be an opera singer and you put on your best dress and you go on stage and hope for the best it doesn't doesn't work like that and writing's the same it's a skill I often say that to kids, you know, you don't wake up and think, right, I'm going to run in the 100 metre sprint in the Olympics today and fall out of bed, put your runners on and hope for the best. It's yeah, yeah. Any, anything, um, a skill like writing, singing, sport, you practice. And that's basically what it was with me. I just practice so much. And so I reframe my rejection years as my practice years. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds kind of like an apprenticeship years. apprenticeship years. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I was, it just brought to mind what you said, just brought to mind. Um, I remember, you know, being dragged off to a cricket camp that was my brother's cricket camp um, when we were kids. <laughs> and 
some of the amazing West Indian players were there teaching these kids. And they said to, they said to them, I can't remember which player it was, but he said to them, practice is good, but practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And I think (laughs) we don't want to all be perfectionists and hold ourselves back here, but it's also, as you said, um, you know, a part of your process was reading reading what you thought brought characters to life in other people's books and stories and analysing and learning and studying it and and perfecting those elements, um, yeah. you know, in, in, an, in an, I guess, an intelligent sort of strategic way. Um, not yeah, just well, I suppose that's... Hmm. Yeah, and I suppose that's what um, if people do. There are wonderful writing courses out there now and I, I didn't ever really... I don't know whether I didn't know about them or didn't, I certainly didn't ever consider doing a writing course. I mean, I'd done an arts degree in, in literature and so there was a fair bit of writing in that. So I suppose in that way I'd done done some training in writing. Yeah. Uh, but really what those courses would do would be the same thing as you can do when you're self-taught with anything, you know, in learning learning from others. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, it was a fairly long apprenticeship. <laughs> Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> and um, one of the things that that I find a really interesting juxtaposition in in the books of yours that I've read is that these these three books are based um, in war situations. So that the protagonists are children, and most a lot of them, and they're they're based in war situations, and yet. Your writing is such a celebration of connection and joy and friendship and love and 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 humor that you manage to bring into <laughs> into these these um, you know stories that are just based in really actually horrific circumstances. Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's yeah, that's a big question. Um, I I think I've always tried to write the sorts of stories I wish were available to me as a child, or in a way that I feel would have engaged me as a child. So I'm always keeping my child audience in mind, and I think that's really important because then if you're writing to children, and I think this is the case for adults too. I think everyone really needs a sense of hope in a story. I think you need to, particularly writing with children, I think you need to leave children with a sense of hope at the end of a story and give a sense of hope and connection throughout the story. And so that's always foremost in my mind. Um, And I think, like in writing for children, I'm always aware that even though I'm dealing with dark topics, I, I need to make it age appropriate for children and I need to make it accessible and I also need to make it entertaining if we're realistic about it books aren't a novel is not primarily for education it's for entertainment and in entertaining and getting your audience in of course you can change people's minds about things and inform them Um, that's that's the power of an historical novel of course but I'm always aware that I have to relate to children and so in doing that 
I think of, well, what's what's important? What do children need need in their lives? And we all, children and adults, we all need community. We all need family. We need friends. We need to feel loved and safe and important. And, of course, in a war story, that safety and often that family and community is gone. But the way I see my characters surviving and making it through is that along the way they they find other people who are being their family in place of family they've lost, being their friends, often surprising people who they would think was their enemy. Um, and because I do think those things are important to us all. And as you read stories, real stories of survival, often it's those chance encounters or those encounters where someone is kind and puts themselves out that actually makes the difference between survival and, and death in those really extreme situations. Yeah. I don't I think I'm going around in circles but I'm not really answering the question but um I don't know that yeah. my question was really fully answerable I mean it's a such a big <laughs> uh, you know but you know one of the things also that really struck me about those three books um and I don't know whether you sort of had the seed of the idea of all of them when you when you started the first one did you or no no oh. actually I hadn't even planned to write the story about the wolf's kinder, that was just a bit of a chance encounter. I was looking for another war story that I thought was true in, in Denmark that turned out not to be what I thought it was. But in looking there, I came across a Danish online newspaper that talked about an article about the wolf's kinder now, which are, obviously is an ageing population and a disappearing population. And I didn't know who they were, so I read about the wolf's kinder and was fascinated. And I just gave an offhanded comment to my publisher saying, oh, have you heard about these? This is a fascinating story. Um, not, not really thinking oh, I need to write this. And she wrote back and said, oh, yeah, that does sound fascinating. Send us in your idea when it's fully developed. <laughs> so oh, I better, better develop the idea. So that's that sort of really was a happy accident for me because it started me on this path of writing war stories. So while I was researching werewolves, I was looking up things about Hitler youth and the role of children being forced into doing things during the war that children yeah. should never be asked to do, no, that nobody should be asked to do really. Mm. Um, and then I came across stories about child soldiers, which is where I got the idea for the story of rabbit soldier, angel thief. And by that stage, my publisher said, well, we really need to make it three books to round it out and it needs to be a lesser-known story again. And she, she'd found this story about the Lebensborn program that she said, what about this? Does this interest you? So it was really all a bit of a happy accident. But now I I love writing that sort of novel, yeah. the research writing, and I'll continue to write, write those sorts of stories along with the other lighter stories I write. Yeah, Oh, good. Because one of the, actually, the main question my niece had for you is, <laughs> are you going to write a story based in the Ukraine? Oh, yeah, a few kids have been asking, a few children have been asking me that. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, there might be one that's set in World War Two in the Ukraine. I've, I've had an interesting discussion last year during Book week, I came across a few children who had family who'd come out from what was Yugoslavia, you know, Bosnia and those areas during that war in the 80s and the 90s. And they said, oh, have you thought of writing about that? And I was talking to one of the librarians at the school who'd come from Bosnia and she, I said, I feel like there are people who 
are alive today and have lived that firsthand and it's their story mm. to tell because they're still there to tell the story. Okay. And I suppose I feel a little bit like that with Ukraine yeah. as well, if there are people who've experienced that. I think the reason I feel happy to tell World War II stories that aren't my stories because there aren't a lot of these people aren't around still to tell these stories. And if they haven't been told now, well, it's maybe up to someone who's not connected to tell that story. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah I never say never, though. And this, in, interestingly, the librarian said to me, I would be happy for someone like you who has writing skills to tell this story. She said, it's my story, but I don't have, I'm not a writer. So that that was interesting too, to get that balance. It's really important that we let people tell their own stories if they're able to. But she was saying, well, maybe uh, though we need someone who who's a writer to tell that story for us. So mm. there's all, always that sort of delicate balance yeah. as a writer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another of the wonderful things that really struck me about those three books is that the protagonist is a different nationality each time. And so what <laughs> what we're all seeing is that we're all the same. We all have the same struggles. Villains are not villains necessarily. Yeah, not yeah. All of them. You know, people yeah. we think are villains are actually struggling with their own thing. They're just from a different country, um, you yeah. know, and and we all need the same things. Um, and I, I just think that the fact that the protagonists and seeing seeing the war and their experiences through their own eyes um, from different, you know, in inverted commas, sides, <laughs> um, yeah, it just yeah. really highlighted that. Yeah, and I, that's something I really hope that I've driven home in the stories without beating my reader over the head, um, is that war, war is not a clear-cut thing. It's not goodies and baddies and winners and losers there are good people and there are people who do horrendous things on mm. both sides of, of war and ultimately when there's a war no matter what side you're on or whether you're on the winning side or the losing side every, everyone loses in the end yeah. there's just so much destruction and death and loss and the generational consequences are mm. horrendous and yeah. I think that's you know, I mean, that's a heavy message <laughs> in my books. I think I always hope I um, show the power of love and kindness, even just small acts of kindness to change lives, to change the world. But there's also this thing that that I think we all need to know that wars, wars just makes everyone lose, no matter what happens in the end. It's also that thing where, yes, there are, there are a few people in the world, I believe very few who are villains? <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> a lot of people who we perceive as 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 villains, they, you know, you showed this very clearly in um waiting for the storks, you know, that yeah. Yeah. It, sometimes people's villainous behavior, they actually think they're doing the right thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. they really believe that. They have a firm conviction that they're doing the right thing. And you look at it from your perspective and you think, how could you possibly think you were doing the right thing? But they did. <laughs> and we're all indoctrinated, aren't we? We are all indoctrinated by our parents, our, our teachers, our politicians, the world in which we live um, teaches us to think a certain way. And that's, yeah. you know, whether it's 
good indoctrination or bad indoctrination. It's the reality of life and upbringing, isn't it? Absolutely. And one of my favourite, um, uh, how would I describe, uh, describe him? David, D- Dr. David R. Hawkins. So he he wrote a lot about, um, how would you describe it? I guess, you know, spiritual stuff. But one of the yeah. one of the points he makes that just has stuck with me is he said the human mind is not capable of telling truth from falsehood. Yeah, yeah. Because we are all indoctrinated and we are looking at things from a certain perspective according to what we believe, what we've been taught. Um, you know, anyway, that's something that's really, really stuck with me and um and when we think about why people behave the way they do, often thinking that they're doing the right thing, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's often yeah. a kind of just a a bit of a a, a fault of our minds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'll give you an example of something that's that really drove home to me how indoctrinated we are. I finished my schooling and my university education during the Cold War. So I finished university in 1988. And so all my history learning has been very biased towards the West. And, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's still still things that I would agree with from that education. But when I was researching for both werewolves and then particularly onto Rabbit Soldier, Angel Thief, and started reading um, diaries like Vasily Grossman was a war war correspondent, a propagandist for the Red Army, and he kept his own private diary. So there was damning stuff about the Red Army, but also such lovely stuff about the Russian people. And I read um, a lot of first-hand accounts of children and women during the war uh, by a woman called Svetlana Alexievich, who did a lot of oral history and recording history. And I just, it just changed the way I felt about um, so many things that I felt I've been I've been not told this side of history. I've been given such a Western point of view. It really made me stop and think about my own prejudices. And we all like to think that we're not we're not biased, we're not prejudiced. But we only know what we've been told, and we are all biased. We are all prejudiced. Um, so that was really I I really that's one thing I've really enjoyed about researching for these historical novels is I've been challenged in my viewpoint of history and I've learned so much new stuff and I've changed my mind about some things and that's I think that's really exciting we're lifelong learners aren't we and we should be open to yeah. <laughs> changing our minds when we know that we're wrong or that there's we've only been given one side of a story mm. so when you're so when when you've come across or found these true stories, um, you know, people's true stories, the 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 angel of Leningrad, um, you know, the, the Lebensborn <laughs> program, you know, stories of those children. Um, how do you then how do you then get to know the characters? How do you develop the characters? How do you feel your way into them? Because I know you you are disciplined as a writer. <laughs> and um and I'm just curious how, how what that process is like because I imagine I imagine it takes time just to percolate you know yeah a- absolutely and so the the real challenge too with writing these stories is they're all stories about lesser known aspects of 
World War II. And there's a reason that they are lesser known, and that's because there isn't much information <laughs> about them. Right. And so seeds there in what I've found, but there aren't a lot of, like um, with the Wolfskinder, by the time many of those people came forward and were brave enough to say, look, I'm actually not Lithuanian, I'm, I'm German, I was a wolf child. Um, that was when the Soviet Union had crumbled. They only felt safe to do that. And so many of those stories had been lost by that stage. People had passed away or they were so young when they first, you know, were living as wolf children. So a lot of those stories are lost. And the same with um, the story of little um, Sergei Leshkov, this little child soldier, where as I started to read different accounts, it became very apparent that all those accounts actually came from one source. It was just people's variation, a bit like Chinese whispers uh, that it had mm-hmm. changed. And, and so what I do there is I read everything I can about the topic and about those children, but it's often quite tricky. I do a lot of, when you do a lot of reading online, every now and again a book will pop up and it might be a rare book that you can get through A books because it's out of <laughs> print. So I gather everything I can. Um, and then once I've read all the information on that topic, um, I then start to build up the picture around it. So, for instance, with the with the wolf's kinder. Of course, I had to learn about um, what happened in East Prussia during and after the war and why the Russians did what they did, what happened in Russia during the war and, and the Soviet Union. So you start to build it up like a jigsaw puzzle. But with my characters, I try to form my character, my main characters, fairly early on in my research. So I do, I, my characters are fictional, even though they're inspired by, by real things. And I do a series of activities with every main character in any book I'm writing that helps me to get to really know and love my character. If I don't know them and love them, I can't write about them. So I do a whole heap of notes and getting to know them. And then with the historical research, then I really take those characters with me. It's like I'm walking through the research, holding them by the hand so that the things I research become relevant to them so I can imagine what it would be like for them in those situations so there'll be some things I think well I'm not going to attach that to their stories but other things I'll just gather and wrap around them as part of their stories as I'm researching then so it's really important for me to know my main characters part way through the research early on in the research does does that make sense that's a wonderful thank you so much for that yes and and you know your your um your love for the character shines through not only your love but your <laughs> compassion for them and their experience shines through so much. Um, yes, so what you've described absolutely makes sense. And, <laughs> I mean, I guess another question is when you're developing these characters, how much of them is you? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. I I think I always Sorry, Katrina. put a dose. You're just can you hear me a little bit? Okay. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I've got you back. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think I always put a fair dose of myself into my main character. I I think that's I just accidentally do that, I suppose, because I need to relate, especially if it's the narrator, like in these books, they're narrated. Uh, first person present tense so I'm telling the story through their eyes and I think I can't help putting myself a little bit into those characters Mm -hmm. but I think the other thing is that I always take the journey with my characters 
So when I'm writing a story, wherever my characters are, whatever they're seeing, whatever they're doing, whatever's happening around them, I actually put myself there with them and imagine myself there with them. So it's like I'm living the story with them, um, which is how I can imagine what they're smelling, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, how their body's reacting, what they want to say, you know, if they're impulsive or if they're quivering behind a tree or so I suppose in that sense I put myself into it. And so I feel like I experience the story with my characters as well. Yeah. Which oh, is that's... exhausting. It's really, it is really emotionally exhausting. But I, I don't, I honestly don't know how else to do it. That's just, I don't know how else I would write the story if I didn't do it that way. I hadn't considered that, that that would be emotionally exhausting, but of course it would. Um, <laughs> and don't, don't get me wrong. I don't mean I've suffered those things that people really no, no, suffered. No. I, I try to try to imagine and live that as much as I can with my characters. Yeah. yeah, no, no, that makes complete sense. And because that was in the back of my mind is how can you describe things so vividly and with such clarity in terms of what somebody's feeling physically, emotionally, mentally, what they think, if it's not a part of you. I mean, I, yeah, I just, it, yeah. it sort of has to be because even in being able to relate so closely to those characters' experience experiences, it's it's you relating. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think that's too where where research really matters because when you do research, you find like when I, when I researched for werewolves, I felt so clever because I learned all this new stuff. But you can't put all that in the story; it'd just be like an information dump. I'm writing a novel, not a you know, not a history book. But what what reading around the topic so much does for you is that it gives you a picture in your mind of the of the of where your characters are and the world in which they're living. And so there might be a whole heap of stuff that you learn about the situation and what goes on that you never put in the book. But it, to me, it just helps me get a deeper understanding of what's going on. And, mm. um, and I think that that as well as living the moment, each moment with your character also helps perhaps yeah. to be a little bit vivid and realistic yeah yeah so and something you mentioned early on that you know of course you need to be aware of age appropriateness for your um re you know your readers and um and it's interesting isn't it because you know part of me thinks uh, no one no matter their age should ever have to go through war right but we all yeah. do yeah. of all ages and so yeah. how do you know where the line is how do you know when it just goes past that point of being appropriate for children, the children that you're writing for? Uh, I think that's where it really helps to know your audience because I've raised two children myself and they were both easily scared from stories and things. So I suppose I have that them in mind often yeah. when I'm writing. And also I've been a primary school teacher. I'm not anymore, but I used to be a primary school teacher. And so I've had a lot to do with children of that age group that I'm writing for. So I know... I know my audience well. Mm. Um, and, yeah, sometimes I find myself writing things and then I read back over it and think, oh, my goodness, I can't, <laughs> I can't put that in the book. Like sometimes I pull myself up after I've written it and re have to rewrite, of course. Right. Um, and I think there's, you know, your, your editor and your publisher are your safety net as well, although there isn't really anything I think that I was pulled back on. I think there was just one one thing I described in Rabbit Soldier, Angel Thief in, in the Stalingrad, in the crossing of the river that I think my 
editor said, I think this is a little bit graphic. Okay. Um, but I, I think it's knowing my audience and mm. also, you know, just imagining not only children reading it, but imagine, you know, the most sensitive adult, you know, reading it. What's enough for them to understand the story but not be traumatised by it? Well, that's interesting you should say that because, you know, Zara, <laughs> Zara read, sorry, that's my niece, she read the books you know, read them, love them. I read the books and I'm going, bah, 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 and I'm oh, weeping and crying. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've I actually, am. <laughs> no, I'd actually, adult readers have been far more traumatised by these stories too. And and I tell you why that is, because um, because I've written them from the first person present tense, the narrator can only describe what they can see and what they're experiencing at the time. Mm. And so... A younger reader with less world history and less life experience will just take that at face value, what yeah. the narrator's described. Whereas the more life experience and the more historical experience we have, we bring that to the story. That's the magic of a story, isn't it? We read it at the level we're ready to read it. And so adults come and they read this part that I've described and they know they know what's going on around here. They know what the consequences for each of the characters will be long-term, all those sorts of things. Um, so I suppose that's, that's part, of the, part of the challenge too is writing a story that can be can be read at the point at which uh, children are ready to take it to. Having said that, I wouldn't recommend children below 10 years of age read these books, so they're not not appropriate. Yep. yep. There, there was a moment There was a moment in, um, I think it was in um, Rabbit Soldier, Angel Thief, where I read it and it was, it, you know, it's where the, the helmet, he catches the helmet. Oh, I know. <laughs> and... He feels so, so he vomits in the helmet. I was like, oh, oh, oh my goodness, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> and I won't and I won't ruin it for people who are listening because please read these books. Your life will be enriched by them. Um, but there was a moment where I thought, oh, I can't. Yeah, and I think there are there are there are some things you can get away with depending on what happens after or how you describe them or yeah but it's it's yeah it is difficult getting that balance <laughs> that was oh. actually one scene that I thought I might be pulled up on but I maybe maybe my editor had made a note but on reading on they might have thought oh this is okay but yeah oh, it's, a, it's the most <laughs> extraordinary moment it's fantastic but it's just that juxtaposition of you know I mean, that's also the resilience of children and being in the moment and dealing with whatever is going on right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was just an incredible moment. Yeah. Um, and there's also that thing. There's also that thing that I read often in in my research with all of these stories, and that you think, how could children, how could children possibly cope with these situations? But I think you you're right there, children live in the moment, okay, this is what's happening, I just have to deal with this. And I think that maybe is sometimes why children are more resilient than adults because they don't even look beyond the moment. They're just, we get through this and get through that. And um, But also I've read a lot about how war, war sadly changes people and so when people are confronted with daily disaster, that almost becomes I want to it's say normalized. normal. I don't know whether that's the right word. That makes that's awful. I might be using a, the wrong word there, but it 
it does normalise well, violence, loss and tragedy, doesn't it, because that becomes your everyday. Oh, and look, Katrina, with some of the work that I do with clients now, the sorts of things that they thought were normal or didn't even think to question when they were children. Yeah, yeah. yeah are sometimes just the most extraordinary things and yeah. it's amazing it's amazing i mean look it's a I, I, it's a part of um it's a survival strategy isn't it it helps people survive and get through things and helps ch- children yeah. cope yeah um you know in and that, that comes back yeah that sort of comes back to that thing too we were talking about indoctrination like you've got indoctrination and then you've got these extreme things that happen in war and when there are despotic regimes and that that you know everything if that's what you're surrounded by and you don't know anything else do you how do you know how do you know what normal is for someone living in a peaceful country or um yeah it's really it's 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 horrific when you think about it isn't it yeah and when you're about it yeah um the the environment in which you write in which you work um is beautiful right you 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 talk about um you know the view and you've got photos on your website the view outside your window the various animals that have come to visit you and come and you know (laughs) olive comes and sleeps by your 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 side as you're as you're writing how important is your environment to your ability to write? Oh, I think it's, for me, it's, I think it's really important. I definitely need a space where I can be away from the world and have complete silence and, and big gaps of time on my own. I, I know a lot of people who write brilliantly who have full-time jobs other than their writing and they've got busy families and that and they write in little windows and they still write amazing stories I I can't work like that I actually really need peace and quiet and I need chunks of time like days and weeks to actually live in my story to really get it going and to to write it and I think also certainly writing these more serious stories it's really important to keep a balance in your life and for me to be able to go out and walk across the hills and and with my husband and have lovely chats and I suppose sometimes I debrief or I problem solve when I'm walking but also often it's just a matter of getting out and getting fresh air and being in this real privileged world that I live in that sort of balances it so you don't get too um too too down about what you're writing I suppose um, and certainly the animals and everything create a bit of balance, <laughs> yeah. a bit of balance in my life. The other thing that gives me balance too is I write, I really love writing lighthearted humour and humour and action and fantasy sort of, not not deep fantasy, but, you know, fun fiction for children. And then between these books, I've been writing a, a really fun light story called the uh, series called The Travelling Bookshop, which is just about this sweet little family that travels around in their wooden caravan that's, you know, a bookshop. And so that's also a balance is to make sure I'm writing lovely, light, fun things in between writing the the more serious things. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I remember years ago, I met, um, we were living in Berlin, I met uh, Bernard Schlink wrote the reader I think um, oh okay yeah I, I think I've got his name right <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing um but anyway he said that he when he's writing yeah he needs to he also 
taught at university because he said he needed to feel his feet firmly in the real world as well mm. as, you know, not solely to be in his writing world, yeah. his stories world. Yeah. And that was very important to him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So when you talk about, um, when you mentioned the discipline required, just on a day-to-day thing. So when you're in the middle of writing a book, um, whether it's a lighthearted one, you know, the traveling bookshop or whether it's, it's, um, and I shouldn't say, you know, the, the books like We Are Wolves, those three books, they have so many moments that are lighthearted. So I don't want to give people the impression that it's all doom and gloom. It's not. No, no. <laughs> love. There's joy in these books. That's what's so touching about yeah. them. But when you're in your groove and you've put aside chunks, weeks to write, what does your day look like? You know, when you get up, oh. do you start writing straight away? Do you no. know that you no? No, I don't. I don't write. Sorry, not. I do have a routine, yes, but I don't wake up and start writing. I'm not a morning person, so I stagger around and have breakfast and drink <laughs> coffee, and um, I I read a bit. I often read a bit, you know, while I'm having breakfast and have a slow start to the day. But ten o'clock's my starting time. I, have, I always make sure I'm starting. Sometimes I might have some emails to deal with that I'll deal with before then, or or at 10 o'clock, but I try to start writing at 10 o'clock and I will write um, sometimes till four o'clock, sometimes till five o'clock or six, depending on how how it goes. I'll basically write until I can't feel like I'm not concentrating anymore. And that writing, you know, inevitably there'll be emails and stuff that'll pop up, but I'm I'm not someone who always needs to be looking at social media or my emails and that. I really do hunker down and write and I can write for hours and realize I haven't shifted from my desk for hours. Uh, because I do get lost in the story. And I do really need, I, I really need that to, mm. to be productive. And, you know, I mightn't produce a lot in a day's work. Sometimes I might, but other times I might write a chapter and get to the end of the day and think, oh, I could have written that in one sentence. And so I write a <laughs> sentence and take the chapter out. <laughs> or, and particularly, well, particularly with Waiting for the Storks, I, I, think I probably would have written half a million words to write a 60,000 word novel there because so often I would start writing and I'd think oh no I can't write that that's too too dim or too dark or getting Mm. too you know getting too traumatic or just wasn't working I found it very hard to write but that's you know got there in the end (laughs) yep yep and so um you mentioned that you know I think you mentioned this in your bio when you when you get stuck on a plot, um, the next plot move or something about a character, or whatever, you'll go for a, you'll go for a walk. You'll just clear your head. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. Um, do you, do you? I mean, you've, you've mentioned problem solving. So is that a conscious process, or is it often the case that when you, when you're not thinking about it, and you're thinking about, I don't know, you know, the sheep over there, or the, whatever it is, it just comes to you. What, what needs to happen next? It's, it happens both ways. So sometimes I, I actively problem solve and I might even get out pieces of paper and start brainstorming and or I'll talk to another friend who's a writer or to my husband or to my son or someone and, and sort of have a bit of a conversation to try and nut it out and get a bit of bit of to and fro. But often it is like you say where you just 
you can be struggling over something all day and then you'll get up to make a cup of coffee. I think that's it. I'm not working for the rest of the day. You go for a walk and you're making dinner or cleaning your teeth and you go, oh, that's it. That's the solution. <laughs> so it does often come at you sideways. Yeah. Do you, Despite do you all have... my efforts to do it in a logical way. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, are you um, somebody who needs to have, you know, a pen and paper beside your bed? Uh, no, but I often, when I'm walking with my husband and we often go for a walk at the end of the day and we'll be walking along and I'll go, oh, I've just I've just worked out the problem and I'll tell him because I've got a shocking memory. So he's <laughs> like my backup notebook if I haven't got it. But I do always have pen and paper with me in my handbag or, you know, in case a, a, a solution comes to me or an idea comes to me while I'm out and about. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It just brings actually to mind a friend who, who lives near you and uh, oh. her parents, her parents um, are, are wonderful people. Anyway, um, they they went to the the doctor right for for her far something her father needed, and um, and my friend asked him, well, did you have a list of the the things that you you needed to ask? And he said, no, I don't need a list. I've got a parrot. <laughs> Referring to his wife, <laughs> I've got a parrot <laughs> on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that just that just yeah. made me laugh. <laughs> So are there any yes. are there any questions? Because um, I know that you do go to schools quite a lot and you you know you, you talk to children who've read your books and um, have there been many questions um, that have particularly struck you that children have asked or um, that have that you've found particularly memorable? Um, I think <laughs> I think often children, yeah, I can't think of anything that's particularly memorable. I think the thing that often children want to know is what happens, what has happened to characters that I haven't specified in the book, um, what's happened to them. And I, I love that because it shows that the characters matter to them, that, um, yeah, you've probably asked a lot of the questions that I get asked. Yeah. But the thing of what, what happened to this character or that character that, you know, have left the story at some point that they don't know about, I, I always love that question from children because it shows that they've engaged in the story and, and the characters matter to them, that they want to know. Um, and I always say to them, that's in your power as the reader. If it hasn't been told by the writer, that's your power as the reader to decide. And I've, I've had letters written from emails and letters written from children who said what happened what happened to this character and that character and they really want to know but I always say I I know sometimes it's I think it's quite obvious what's happened to that character but mm. they haven't yeah. haven't realized that and I don't burst their bubble by saying that characters you know died or they're never coming back or anything I say that's that's for you to decide and um I think one thing that I absolutely love is when I get <laughs> I get quite a few letters from from children, particularly little girls who tell me they'd like me to write a sequel, particularly to Werewolves, and they'll give me very, very specific details about what should happen in the story too. They'll really? basically give me the plot about different characters and who should have a romance with who and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. And that's that's always very moving too to me because I so they care. They care about what happens. Yeah. Yeah. But off, offhand, I can't think of anything that's, uh, yeah, a mm. really 
um, really something that's really soft to me. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, and I'm not going to ruin it for, re for, for readers, people who are going to read the books, <laughs> but um, I was, I was so relieved at the end of we are stalk, uh, waiting for stalks, I was. I didn't think. I didn't think that was going <laughs> to. Anyway, I'm not. But but I was so grateful <laughs> for that. Um, is yeah. that is that the ending? Without sort of you know uh, ruining it for anybody, is that the ending that you had planned from the beginning, or was that changed? I wondered when I finished the book. Uh, no, that I think. <sighs> I don't know that I knew exactly. I, I always want these stories to have a satisfying ending for for my readers. I think, especially when they're they're as, as you say, there's hope throughout and humor and love loveliness throughout, but there's also sadness and loss throughout the story. So I always like to end the stories on a sense of hope and satisfaction, which doesn't mean everything works out for my characters. But um, I don't know that I did have it all worked out at the end of, of that one. I can't remember now, you know, it's just, uh, it just becomes so real to me by the time it's finished writing, everything becomes so real. I sometimes even struggle to think of the difference between fact and, and fiction in my stories because it becomes so real. I can tell you, I had a different ending planned for werewolves. I had a very different ending planned there, which I can tell you after we're off air, Sally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't spoil the real one, but um, yeah. <laughs> so are there any questions that you've never been asked that you wish you'd been asked? No, I don't. I, I think I'm often asked the things that I think matter, you know, things like what do I hope, you know, what lessons do I hope? young readers will take from the story not lessons what they will take away from it I'm not writing I'm writing a novel and I but I there are things that I really hope I get through um, I'm often asked that and that's really important to me that um, that young people do get those messages about the horrors of war and that mm. kindness kindness changes the world changes lives um, yeah, but I think people gen generally ask <laughs> ask a good range of questions. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us um, or perhaps, you know, uh, share with parents of children who are reading these books before we sign off, Katrina, or do you feel like we've... Um, yeah, there's something that there's something that I've got sitting here beside me that I often like to share with children and audiences that I just is something that is a reminder to me of what I'm writing about. And I don't know whether you'll be showing this online, Sally, but I've got this really bright crocheted doily here. Yeah. And when I um so I'll go back to when when I started writing We Are Wolves, because it's the first war story I'd written. I, I did a whole heap of research. I planned it really well and I felt very competent to tell the story. And I started writing the story and got absolutely <laughs> stuck. I just all of a sudden thought, hang on, this isn't this isn't an easy thing to do. I'm actually, even though I'm writing a story for children, I'm actually writing about things that happen to real people, really traumatic things that happen to real people. And 
I realised that I had to be very respectful in the way I told these stories mm -hmm. and honest about it, but I couldn't, I couldn't um, make light of these things, but I had to make it accessible for children. So that was that, that thing of finding that balance in the story between how much to tell and how to make it accessible for children. And um, when I finished writing Werewolves, um, I got a letter from a lovely lady who lived in, in Perth, a lady who, an older lady who lived in a retirement village, and she'd read my book and she was telling me about her friend. She used to have this friend called Lydia who'd lived next to her at the retirement village, and she said, I really loved reading werewolves from the German side of things. I want to tell you about my friend Lydia, and she was a child in Russia during the war, and she was one of the stolen children who was taken and sent to Germany as a slave, and she worked on a farm as a slave during the war. Um, she later migrated to Australia and, and lived a very happy full life here in Australia. But she said, I think you should um, consider telling the story from the other side of things. Well, it just so happens that um, just the week before I'd sent in my manuscript for Rabbit Soldier Angel Thief, told oh. from the Russian <laughs> point of view. And I said, also in that story, there is a little girl called Lizabeta. A uh, little episode with that, but who, like your friend Lydia, was stolen from her home in Stalingrad and sent to as a slave to Germany. And I just, to me, that was just one of those magical story moments. But it also brought home to me that these these are real story. Um, my story is fiction, but these things really happen to real people. And so that's always like a something that I keep in my mind as as. Um, a responsibility and also a privilege to share those stories. But when I when um, Rabbit Soldier Angel Thief came out, I sent a copy to this lovely woman and said, I hope you feel like this goes some way to honouring your friend Lydia's story, the reality of what happened to her. And she sent back this doily to me with a beautiful letter and said, Lydia's passed away, but I got some of her things when she died. And she said, this doily has been made by Lydia and she said, I think um, you should have it, not me, because now there's a, a connection established between you and my friend Lydia because of your story. So this is so precious to me because it's not only reminds me of the true stories, but it's also a reminder of the connection that story gives and um, how it, you know, that magic of bringing people's lives back alive. And that I, this woman living in Victoria, um, have this connection to this little girl who was who was taken from her family in Russia in World War II, that there's this connection between us now. And I have a doily yeah. <laughs> to show that connection. So to me, that's, that's very special to me that, um, you know, the magic of story to keep people alive, the privilege of telling stories, the responsibility when we tell those sorts of stories, but also just, just the joy of, of it connecting you with other people and their lives. Yeah. Well, thank you, <laughs> Katrina, for, you know, creating that connection and allowing for it. And it, 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 it has been a privilege for me to speak with you, um, today and I'm I'm so grateful for all that you offer all of us your readers and for giving of your your time so generously today and um thank you for for all you've given us oh no it's my my pleasure thank you so much for having me here Sally <laughs> and and listeners and viewers you're all a part of this conversation too so thank you for being a part of this and I really look forward to meeting with you over the waves next time. Thanks, everyone.
Bye.